if we just learned about a language, you know, and, and then they, and, and somebody said, okay, go build a system. What could you do in 30 days? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot. We're joined today by Jonathan May. He received his PhD in computer science from USC in 2010. Prior to rejoining USC and the Information Sciences Institute in 2014, he was a research scientist at SDL Language Weaver. John's researching areas include language, natural language processing, specifically machine translation and semantic parsing, and formal language theory. Dr. May, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here. Sir, uh, before we dive into uh, the program that you're working on and how it relates to humanitarian assistance and disaster response and civil affairs branch of the uh, military, we want to go through some of the basics of what uh, your field entails. So if you could go into more detail about uh, your background and uh, the natural language processing field. Sure, great. Uh, so my background is in computer science. I was a computer science major uh, in college, uh, and I started to become uh, very interested in uh, artificial intelligence. I thought it was really cool that uh, uh, you know we could build systems that uh, could uh, you know try to be uh, you know uh, mimic the brain sort of or play games uh, against humans and uh, and uh, in particular, I like the uh, the idea of, uh, of I discovered this this field called natural language processing. Um, which is really about um, uh, how how humans and computers can talk to each other. Uh, really, how computers can understand human language uh, and then produce uh, human language and 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 everything that that uh, that that entails. And, and today, you see a lot of natural language processing, uh, or it's also sometimes known as computational linguistics, uh, in um, in your day to day life. So uh, you know, if you're if you're just using say Google and, and typing a search query there, you know, you're you're just you're using your own words to try to figure out what you want, and then uh, a computer algorithm somewhere is trying to find a web page uh, that's responsive to you. So that's that's you know that's natural language processing right there. Uh, other areas are uh, d- determining when you spelled a word wrong. Um, uh, a, a kind of uh, a classic example is uh, Siri, who is listening to you speaking, understanding the words that you're understanding the speech patterns and turning those into words, and understanding what those words are supposed to mean, and then trying to give you an answer. Um, or uh, automatic translation, which is you know where you you got some Chinese web page and you want to figure out um, you know what does this mean you know maybe it's a, a train ticket booking uh, page you need to figure out how to buy your tickets and they don't have uh, the data somebody didn't write a translation so you have to automatically translate these words um, and uh, and then you can you can actually uh, engage in commerce there uh, even though uh, they don't speak your language and you don't speak theirs so uh, I love all that stuff it really is. It, seems to me like a great way to particularly translation to, to unify the world so we're all kind of speaking one language together uh, and uh, yeah and, uh, there's there's um, lots of great accomplishments that have happened uh, over the past 20 years or so and, and I think there's a lot more uh, there's still to be done it seems to be a field that's advancing at a rapid pace right now yes yes in particular um, you know uh, the, the field has really been around about as long as uh, computers have been around 
um, pretty much, uh, you know, the early, early development of computers uh, that were at the end of the Second World War uh, were first used for calculating missile trajectories, but then the second use was uh, trying to uh, do automatic translation, in particular, like in the early 50s, uh, the U.S. was particularly keen, of course, on, uh, on translating Russian, uh, and, uh, and and this was way back when, but it wasn't it wasn't very good for a very long time. But uh, in the modern era, we have um, we have large volumes of data available to us, uh, and and uh, really sophisticated, fast hardware uh, that's able to process this data, and so we're able to um, we're able to take advantage of of all this data and uh, and learn statistics about the data to help us. Um, uh, that that uh, have, have led to lots of gains, really practical gains. And in the past, uh, say, five to seven years in particular, uh, this uh, you've probably heard about these advents of, uh, of deep learning, which is the use of this, uh, this particular kind of technology called neural networks. Uh, and uh, and they have, have really led to, to some really stunning developments. And now, sometimes it can be hard to tell whether you're talking to a computer or a human. Wow. And, and so that, it's fascinating. And it wanted to ask you about a, a question that uh, was included in a brief that you had provided to some civil affairs uh, troops recently. The, the question was, can we leverage artificial intelligence or AI to respond to disasters around the world? What inspired you to ask that question? Uh, I want to give credit to DARPA for really asking that question uh, before I did. Um, but uh, I, uh, you know, I saw... Um, well, I think they saw, and we all saw it together. In um, I was working for um, uh, this machine translation company after graduation in, uh, in 2010, uh, and I remember there. So this was a company, and we were providing um, translation many different kinds of languages to um, to companies, and also for some government projects, and also for um, uh, to help um, human translators actually do their job better. And uh, I remember there was a, the uh, earthquake, I believe, in Haiti, and it was a big humanitarian crisis. And most of the people in Haiti, of course, speak uh, Haitian Creole, which uh, isn't a language that we have that, that we've historically spent efforts on um, on trying to do, to build automatic translation systems for. There's not a lot of data. There's not too many people that actually speak uh, Haitian Creole. The population paid, which is relatively small. Uh, but I still, I asked my uh, boss at the time, I said, you know, is there anything that we could do? I feel like, you know, maybe we could be of some service. And he said, well, I don't think there's much we could do. I mean, you know, these people are in a crisis situation right now. Uh, and it takes us quite a bit of time to gather enough data to build a system. And, and even building the systems takes some time. Uh, and uh, by, by the time we're ready to uh, deploy a translation system to maybe connect, say, uh, USAID um, providers uh, with uh, the people on the ground who are maybe texting out their requests. Uh, uh, it's going to be too late. But uh, so we didn't do anything. But there were people who did, and uh, there was a, there was a program uh, where they went down, uh, and, and there was a team of, of people who did what I do. Uh, but they also brought in you know native uh, Haitians, uh, expats, uh, and they were trying their best to to use what technology they could. Uh, and also just kind of scramble to translate these things as fast as possible. But it was, you know, it's it kind of like it would have been better if they prepared this this sort of thing ahead of time. And uh, and actually, you know, well prior to that, we had done. Uh, I, I worked on a team, I think, back in I want to say 2003, uh, and we were looking into, uh, you know, if we needed to develop a system in a new language for translation or for uh, sometimes translation is fine, but. Uh, you actually typically get lots and lots of data thrown at you all at once. I think um, analysts can receive you know tens of thousands of, of 
documents that they have to sift through a day. Uh, and just translating them all is, is not really necessarily going to be that great. So there's there's other techniques that are, are part of natural language processing, which is uh, understanding the, the most important parts of a document and trying to provide a summary or just identify the names of the people and the places uh, and, and maybe the, the events that are happening in a big picture to kind of uh, to allow some triage to happen. So we wanted to know, could we build those systems uh, if we just learned about a language, you know, and, and then they, and, and somebody said, okay, go, build a system. What could you do in 30 days? Uh, and back in 2003, we, we tried doing this. Uh, and I was really kind of taken by how surprisingly well we were able to do with the, the language at the time, the Cebuano, which is... Where is that spoken? In, I, I should have... Uh, I think it's in... It's in the Pacific, uh, in the Pacific Islands region, and I should look that up. Okay. Um, but... Uh, Second. Um, if that's all right. Uh, Maybe uh, Papua New Guinea or someplace like that. So, I'm sorry. Or the Philippines. Zabuano um, is spoken in. Uh, yes, it's an Austronesian language, so it's spoken. It's native to the Philippines. Okay. Uh, yes, it's the second most. <laughs> it's the second most spoken language in the Philippines after Tagalog. Uh, should have been fresher on that. But anyway, yeah. So, so it's spoken. In, um, it's spoken in the Philippines. Uh, and uh, but I hadn't studied it before, and, and most of our team hadn't. Uh, and uh, you know, we, we did a pretty good job. It was kind of surprising how well we were able to do without too much, without too much specific Cebuano um, uh, um, data. And we didn't talk to any Cebuano experts. Uh, and so this kind of, I think, this idea was was sort of stirring around. And then after 2010. The, uh, at DARPA, they, they came out with this program, uh, which was about, uh, it's called, the name of the program is called Lorelei, uh, and it was about trying to be responsive uh, to, uh, to, to, be, to, to the humanitarian aid and disaster relief um, needs uh, when you don't have a lot of resources available uh, in terms of data and in terms of time. So given very limited data in the language that you need to build a system for and given a very limited amount of time, uh, really ideally 24 hours is what, we, what, what they're aiming for, uh, what kind of uh, systems can we build, what kind of technology can we build? And so that's been um, a major focus uh, for me uh, and for a number of researchers actually um, uh, around the world. Uh, over the past uh, few years, and it's been great because uh, you know we really get to we, we get to work with actual um, with people who speak the language but aren't experts in linguistics or experts in computer science, and they teach us about their language uh, in this really really limited time frame, and we're able to build surprisingly uh, uh, sophisticated systems. It was surprising to me at first, actually, uh, uh, and you know. If you have a little more time, you do a little better, but when you don't have a lot of time, you can still do uh, pretty well. Uh, I think there's there's also been some, some nice in, nice interest in, in deployment um, in, uh, in uh, various agencies, so it's been it's been pretty pretty nice uh, story. Right. Yeah, I think uh, 24 hours is very fast uh, for anyone, but especially for civil affairs and for the military, unless we happen to be on the ground or in country already. Um, if there was a natural disaster or an outbreak or some kind of man-made event, um, it would take a little bit longer for most teams to respond. But if USAID or some other assets were already um, you know, on their way as a DART team, for example, then we would be coordinating with them and having a system like this in place would be very helpful. Well, it's really great to hear that uh, 24 hours is a little too fast because, to be honest, if you wait a week, it's a, little, it's a lot better. Uh, so, um, you know, when, uh, we can do some early triage, uh, but then actually, and the more we, uh, 
the more we see how 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 we're doing at the beginning, the better our systems can get. So uh, uh, in our early days, we, we did uh, give ourselves up to a month. Uh, and by the time you're done with a month of, of uh, training, you've actually uh, you've actually got a, a fairly uh, usable um, system. It's it's still not at the same level as say like a French English translation system, where you know we've got a hundred billions of words of French and English, and we've been studying uh, that problem for for years and years. Um, but uh, we um, you know we we uh, we do pretty well, and you know we we learn more insights on the language over over the time too. Uh, so uh, our first year we were. Working with Uyghur, um, which I'm actually kind of pronouncing wrong. I think it's more like Uyghur, uh, but this is a language that's spoken uh, in China in the, the Xinjiang uh, uh, region, which is in the northwest. Right. Uh, it's a so it's spoken by it's an ethnic minority. It's a Turkic language actually. It has no relationship to uh, uh, to, to Mandarin. Um, and uh, it's uh, you know so we, we we were working with Royal and we realized after after a, a few days or maybe a week of working with it that hey you know um, this language is actually quite similar to some language that we've already got data for uh, and we had a lot of Uzbek data and so uh, we were able to develop uh, techniques for uh, pretending that the Uzbek was Uyghur and actually transforming the Uzbek into Uyghur and now. That increases the amount of data that you've got available, and this is kind of a major part of this of this program is uh, trying to look around and see, you know, even though you don't have a lot of resources in the language that you care about, uh, if you have a lot of resources in other related languages, and you can figure out what those related languages are, can you leverage those? Right. Uh, and, and furthermore, you know, there's to some degree all languages have uh, have property have things in common, right? So even though uh, uh, you know, Chinese and English might seem very, very far apart from each other, and in many ways they are. There's still kind of common understandings that that uh, uh, underlie all languages, uh, and you can take advantage of these these things too. And so there's there's kind of like language universal ideas. So if you if you have a bunch of news data, say, and it's in some some language you don't know this language at all, um, maybe yeah, maybe you're not even told what the language is. Um, you can still assume that people are probably going to be talking at some point about dates, right? You know, days of the week or, or months or years. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, there's certain, you know, we do tend to have to, to segment our, our, uh, our calendar into, you know, roughly four week chunks. And so there's, you know, about between 28 and 31 days uh, in every month. And so you can kind of pick up on these common regularities when you see those numbers um, between 1 and 28 being used near the same words over and over again. You can maybe guess that those words that they're used near are names of months. And you kind of like, it's kind of like a, like a cryptic puzzle in a way. Right. Um, like the way a linguist would break it down. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're, it's or, or really like a, like a Rosetta Stone kind of approach, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're triangulating words together and, and, and really kind of like unlocking a logic puzzle. Right, the uh, syntax so, of it. Yeah, yeah. And the, the trick there is, can you can you write algorithms to do this? Uh, and and you know, can you get away with doing it when you have imperfect data, noisy data, not a lot of data, data that's not even related to your task? Uh, this is a big part of the the HADR issue, right? So we're we want to respond to earthquakes, civil unrest, uh, droughts, floods, um, uh, explosions, terrorism, uh, but uh, the data that we have often is not really that. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll the, the most frequent data you're going to have is the Bible and the Quran. Now there are floods and earthquakes and violence and uprisings and wars uh, in those documents, but they're written in a very different way from uh, 
from the way uh, people are talking about these things nowadays. So, right. uh, you know, you often actually will get some, uh, your initial translation engines, uh, you'll see some very flowery language. And, you know, this is usually because you're, you're, uh, you're picking up words and phrases that you learned from translations of the Bible or the Quran. Um, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a big challenge to try to figure out, you know, what is the kind of language that somebody who's in a disaster situation is using, uh, and, um, and, 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 and train your systems to be specifically aware about, uh, that domain. Yeah. I, one thing that, uh, might be helpful is to include as early on as possible, uh, a linguist who understands the language, but also someone from the area who understands the uh, colloquialisms and can tell you, well, this is the way we use this word that in another part of the country, they don't use that at all. Absolutely. And, and this is a major part of this program, actually. This, I think it's one of the things that makes this program uh, unique uh, uh, relative to other uh, language technology programs is this, uh, this express notion and a, and a kind of like a controlled study of um, uh, getting access to uh, a native speaker who can help you, right? We call these the native informants. Uh, we like to think of them as like uh, a taxi driver. So it's somebody who um, is local to the US now, but is not from here. Their first language is the language in question. Uh, and they they speak English um, as a second language. And they, they, don't, they don't have necessarily linguistic expertise, uh, but they do know about their country, of course. Uh, and so we, we, we've, uh, a big research challenge for us is to, to know how, how can we use uh, human resources uh, as effectively and efficiently as possible. And actually, uh, it occurs to me that civil affairs probably uh, has a lot of um, strategies for how to um, uh, engage with local populations and how to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, acquire information in, in the right way and ask questions. Right. Uh, in the in the style that's appropriate. So this is a big problem for us, actually. You know, is you know we're 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 computer scientists nerds, right? Uh, and so and and we're and I think like everybody, we're we're in our own world a lot of the time. We're talking with our own people, and we have our own uh, acronyms for something. And you know, I might say like one uh, maybe a term of art is you know like oh you know can you tokenize this data and figure out what uh, the foreign and the English words uh, the, the alignment right. of the foreign and English words? That's a you know. I don't expect uh, most people to understand what I'm talking about there. Right? This, this is some very, very specific kinds of, uh, of things. And I imagine, Just to say know, tokenize. Right, tokenize, right? Yeah, what does that mean, right? It has a very specific meaning in the way that I would think about it. And, uh, and without thinking about it, I would just use that word and assume everybody knows it. And I imagine that a similar kind of situation happens with civil affairs um, where, you know, you have your own terminology. But if you want to get information... Uh, uh, from somebody who's, you know, outside that bubble, right? You have to think about how to, to, to engage that. And, and in fact, it might, it might be nice to have a conversation about how uh, the lessons that, that you learned uh, and that, you know, institutionally, the civil affairs has learned because we're sort of, we, we are designing systems, we're designing methodologies for, for um, interfacing with our native uh, informant. Uh, but it is challenging. We found that, you know, asking... Um, you know, even just asking the question, like, is this is this sentence a good translation of this other? Is this a good English translation of this foreign sentence? It's very hard to get um, an answer that is both timely and helpful because, you know, we want to know, you know, is is it just a completely random 
not not you know two sentences that, that could be not alike you know they're like night and day to each other uh or is it like maybe there's some shades of, of translation difference that aren't quite captured that we don't really care about and, um and and by asking the question wrong we can spend 20 or 30 minutes going down a rabbit hole and not really get the data that we need and so we need to uh, a challenge that we addressing and I think getting better at is, is just asking the right questions um, that are going to help us. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Let me tell you about the Civil Affairs Association, the main sponsor of the 1CA podcast. It was established in 1947. The Civil Affairs Association is a veterans organization serving professionals of the U.S. civil affairs community. Members have served or are currently serving in the armed forces or are the descendants of those who served. As a tax-exempt organization, the association operates within the guidelines of Internal Revenue Code Section 501c19. It is organized for educational, professional, fraternal, and social purposes. The association promotes esprit de corps and disseminates relevant information. The CA Association also serves as an advocate for civil affairs within DOD to ensure an adequate capability to perform any mission assigned or task to the CA community. Membership costs are low. E1 through E4 pay only $5 a year. E5 through E9 pay $20. Cadets and midshipmen pay $10. And officers and civilian pay $25 a year. Life membership is also low. Pegged now at $200. So if you're committed to the CA community, then it makes a lot of sense to invest in a life membership and save in the long term. Hi, and welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Dr. May, how do your data sources vary in the test cases you've run so far from an urban area that may have better newspaper distribution or readability to or social media access and use to a more rural area? How does that differ even in the U.S. Uh, if you're going to test it here, but in other countries in foreign languages, how would that apply? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. So we are tasked with analyzing uh, news data. Um, so, for, so for one thing, we have both text data, right? So like printed printed material, and then also uh, audio spoken spoken data material. Um, for the text data, um, which is the majority of it, we have news broadcast, uh, news uh, uh, news articles. We have um, discussion forums, right? So like a like something like Reddit, you know, a kind of thing where people right. are seeing a conversation. It's casual, but sometimes long, long. Uh, Long uh, paragraphs are written, uh, and also social media, uh, uh, much like tw- uh, tweets, basically, uh, but all, or other kinds of short social media. Um, and uh, and then with audio, we have uh, broadcast dialogue, and also I think broad- some broadcast news there. Uh, and uh, it, it has been interesting to see how these things uh, have differed. So, uh, like I said, in the first year, this was two years ago at this point. We were uh, our surprise language, which is the language in the we're actually like being tested. This is a, where, the, where the, the government says go, and then you have you know an X amount of time uh, to to build your system. We uh, we were using Uyghur, and there we found that uh, we had really rich, interesting information. I think in discussion forums or in, in news articles in particular. This is the the event was about an earthquake, um, but uh, not too much. Um, uh, not too much that 
just even discussed um, any kind of earthquake or any kind of uh, calamity in uh, in tweets. Uh, and I remember being told by a native informant that uh, it's it, it could be politically sensitive uh, to complain too much about uh, about something you know uh, uh, earthquakes damaging houses. And so the Uyghur people, according to our native informant, was was not too not too uh, uh, happy to do that. And, right. and, the, and the, the news articles themselves often had a bit of a official um, uh, government feel to them, I would say. There was a lot of talk about um, uh, uh, house construction to prevent earthquakes. Uh, and it wasn't, um, uh, there wasn't um, much of a sense of like uh, uh, outright distress, I would say, that, that we would have expected to see. Um, you, you didn't, okay. you didn't, Whereas, so in the, in the next year, um, we were uh, we were using two languages at that point. That was uh, Tigrinya and Oromo, uh, and these are languages that are spoken in um, uh, like Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, and uh, also Somalia, um, I think. So that that region, um, and there uh, we were getting a lot of um, uh, political differences about. Um, uh, there was a lot of discussion. Of, so there was civil unrest in route, uh, I believe, uh, being discussed there. Uh, there was a lot of discussion of um, um, uh, gang activity or a sh- sh- al-Shabaab, I believe, activity. Uh, and I remember uh, you would get kind of uh, one side saying these people were you know, terrorists, another side saying these people were heroes. And, and I remember one particular time a native informant reading an article saying, you know, they were saying that this is this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, but that's totally not true. They wouldn't do that. Uh, and so you have these questions of, you know, it's, it's maybe not clear what the truth is there. Right. Um, and so uh, in, in, and I suppose, I think that was a bit more of a, that was a more of an urban area kind of setting. Um, I believe the Xinjiang region is, more rural. Don't, don't hold me to that. I'm, I haven't been on the ground in these places. Uh, but your uh, job is not to assign a level of validity to the source. It, it's really just to do the science of the translation. That is true. Um, although, um, so so I, I very much do focus on translation, but the program overall is focused on not only translation, but I'm recognizing. Uh, the names of, of, uh, of uh, people and places and facilities and organizations, uh, kind of highlighting those things and, and right. figuring out when like the same person is being referred to multiple times. You know, if you you can, you can refer to a person or you can refer to anything in, in more than one way, right? You can you can talk about uh, you know um, yeah, good guys uh, and bad guys, and whether you're using a proper name right. or a uh, code name or something else. That people have nicknames, um, and or, or just using a pronoun, right? You can say he, and it's not necessarily clear. Um, it's maybe maybe clear to, to us as humans, but it can be difficult for a computer to figure out who the pronoun the, the he is referring to, especially if like two people are um, uh, uh, met, two two men are mentioned at the same time, right? But but through context, we can usually figure out what the based on our knowledge of the world. Right? Like we can we can figure out what's going on, but it's, it's it can be very hard for a computer to do that. Right. And then on top of that, um, we have we're trying to figure out, given a document, what the uh, uh, more or less what the entire situation is uh, on the ground. So uh, you know what is the overall event that's being described, um, and what are the needs uh, that people have, and have those needs been met, and uh, to what degree is there a sense of urgency? So they're kind of like essentially you can think of it as like a like a 
an entire analyst summary of of maybe a document or even maybe uh, multiple documents. So this um, this is an extremely challenging job. Uh, for that latter, for that last part in particular, it is helpful to know what the truth is. Um, uh, and uh, so so I I do focus mostly on the machine translation. And there, it's more like okay, given that there's this document, what should that doc? How should that document be translated? Right. Um, and Dr. May, is the is the long term intent that DARPA has set out to have a a tool that could be on a dashboard somehow or a mobile device or do they have a vision for how the tool could be used for the military or for USAID or other US assets? Well, I don't want to put words in DARPA's mouth. Okay. Uh, but in particular, we we are definitely uh, Although we're doing basic research in this program, we are tasked with delivering systems that are that um, uh, government clients can use. Right. Uh, and uh, and I think that different uh, clients have had different needs. So you know, many it could be adaptable. Uh, right. Well, yes. Uh, uh, many, but many, you know, many clients want to work in a in an air gapped environment. Right. They have. They have uh, uh, security, secure data, uh, and so you know we need to be mindful of that. A lot of times, research systems can be built on a variety of computers in a university, and you know we'll call out to the internet. And, um, you know that's not going to fly for uh, for somebody that's working with uh, with the you know data that, that needs clearance. Um, uh, and um, uh, and yes, it, it's definitely the case that uh, I've heard from uh, from clients who've. I've met at like uh, demo days uh, that you know they're if they're operating in the field, so that they, they need to run on a laptop or you know like a, a you know a tough book in the field, right? And uh, yeah, I want to be careful that, like I said, I don't know exactly what DARPA's particular needs are here, but um, but it can it, it definitely varies. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Well, what is um, what is your timeline and your team's involvement? Uh, are you going to be collecting data over the next year or two? Is this a, a contract that you have that was it's long term? Yeah, uh, well, so I think the the program term is about four years. The sub and it's you know subject to it's divided into phases and there are uh, you know checkpoints and uh, uh, sometimes funding is altered and sometimes there are down selects and this is kind of the this is the standard world of the, of the government research uh, and, uh, and the way a lot of these programs work is. Uh, that we're in, uh, there are multiple teams that are working on more or less the same program all at once. So there are, there are teams at um, uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, and Johns Hopkins uh, and University of Washington and uh, let's see, where else? Uh, all, all over the place. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of my favorites. Everywhere, wow. And yeah. you guys get together once in a while to share notes and then. So we, we share notes, and um, and so the, the nice thing about this is that you know we yeah we we meet and uh, we learn from each other. You know we'll go in different directions, and if somebody's technology is working uh, better, then we'll say oh okay I, why did you do that you know and uh, you know we, and this comes up in these comes up in academic conferences, and they also come up at, uh, at at our regular like program meetings. You know there's a kind of a big a nice big sea of ideas there, and it's a it's a nice way to to exchange ideas and to also kind of have a common goal that we're all. We're all striving for. So anyway, so like, but your question was, yeah. So it's about four years. We're in, I think the, I think it's called phase two at this point, and we have a, we're we have another evaluation coming up in uh, June, and they, they they make the evaluations keep on getting harder and harder. Right. Um, so we, you know, last the first year we had twenty eight days, and the third and the second year we had twenty one total. Uh, we might have, I think, fewer this time. We we do our best to try to actually like. Get to the um, the end condition as, as uh, even as early as possible. So even in year yeah. one, we were, we were producing a twenty four hour system. 
And that's so when you say 28 days and then down ratchet down 21 days, that's when when DARPA gives you a language and a scenario, you have to put it together as quickly as you can. As quickly as we can with checkpoints that will terminate in the so in the first year, we have 28 days. That's the whole that's the whole evaluation uh, program. What you get it? We got a, um, our data packs, and then in seven days, our first system was due, and then after a total of 14 days, so seven more days, our second was due, and then after 28 days, the third one was due. So wow. systems get better and better. And we when we meet, we also compare notes, and everybody. You know, everybody who's been evaluating the other, we see, oh, you know, what did you do with this period? What did you do with that period? Oh, you know, uh, boy, it was really hard uh, communicating with Native Informant 2. Yeah, but Native Informant 4 was great. And, you know, we learned that we asked this kind of survey question and it works really well. Uh, and uh, it's really great, actually. Uh, but so, yeah. Do you have the, uh, the the most junior postdoc student on coffee duty to keep you alive and, and moving the whole time? Uh, it's something like that, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the, uh, to, I'm at this level. I'm not super senior, and I'm not super junior, and I think, uh, uh, but I'm super stressed. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I was we were spending a lot of a lot of hours on the on native informant duty, and uh, you know, making sure you know we have to when you're submitting your system to be scored, you know, you want to make sure that all all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed. Right. Uh, and I double check and double check and double check that you did everything right. Because you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, it's taking an exam, basically. You want to make sure you've done really well. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the evaluation is really, it kind of, it drives you in a way, right? Because you're, you're you know, this is, that's the, the big adrenaline rush. Uh, but it's all in service of developing the technology, of course. And, and the real benefit is the there's been some really great progress in developing language universal tools, uh, systems that are allowing uh, humans to, uh, so, so allowing monolingual English speakers to act like um, bilingual speakers. So one of the big systems, one of the big uh, advantages that we've had is we developed this tool that uh, lets us act like we are the native informant and create translation data because we're, we're, we're so data hungry. We need to... Um, you know, we'd like to get data that's about the domain in question that's in um, the foreign language and uh, English so that we can you know, build good translation systems. We right. just don't have that data at first, so we need to somehow get some. And the native informants, we don't get too much time with them. So we can only, and asking uh, people who are not experienced translators to just translate documents for us, it's very, uh, very tough to do that. Right. Uh, so we built a system that allows us to actually, even though we don't, I don't speak Oromo or Tigrinya or, or Uyghur, um, uh, it, it kind of merges the um, uh, artificial, the, the machine translation technology, the, so the AI, with my own human intuition. So if I can, I can look at a bunch of like possible translations of a sentence or possible translations of the words of a sentence, and kind of I can kind of get a sense for what the sentence should be about. And then knowing something about world knowledge lets me be a better translator of that sentence. Like at one point, I remember seeing, I can't remember. I think we were, it was. Uh, Say Czech or, or Hungarian. We were trying some uh, some some, uh, uh, some trials before our real evaluation, and I don't know anything about Hungarian. Uh, but I remember seeing something where uh, they were talking about earthquake in Japan, and then it was like you can see it from space. Uh, and I was like, and, and someone's like, that's that's impossible. And I was like, no, no, I remember seeing an article about how the the uh, earthquake was so powerful that you could actually like see effects of it from space. And, and then something kind of clicks on. Uh, and then you know I was able to translate the rest of the document much more easily because I, I like you know I had my access to, to to world knowledge that it's really hard to get to teach computers to do that still. But wow. we were able, I was able to 
use that to build build a little data set. And that little building that little data set is very helpful uh, in making sure that your systems are good. So um, you're like Neo in the Matrix. You keep plugged it in the side of your head and you figure it out. It's like a bunch of you know we haven't gotten to that point yet. We're gonna actually plug the computers into the brains and use them, but we're we're kind of there. Speaking of the brains, also like so, I, I mentioned this deep learning technology uh, has been wildly successful. You probably, there's been a lot of news about it, about you know um, the programs that can do really well like Go or Chess now. And, the, and these the thing about these these technologies is they're extremely data hungry. So they work really well when you've got. Uh, hundreds of millions or billions of words of examples of, of translations and they don't work so well when we don't have a lot of data when we maybe only have a few hundred thousand words of uh of the bible translated uh and so one we've been really pushing on this uh into because when they do work they work great so we want to be able to have them work when you don't have a lot of data uh, and so we're we're actively developing uh, techniques for allowing translation to uh, uh, translation systems to be built that are as fluent as these really nice deep learning models that don't have to be translated on you know all the French English in the world. I would think that as machine processing power and as technology shrinks, or at least capacity to to process on a smaller device improves over time that something more applicable to the field will be more likely. So if we had a civil affairs team somewhere, um, a pocket size approach, you know, instead of having the, the, the processing capabilities that you have at USC, I, I don't know what it requires right now, but if we could shrink that down over time, much more applicable to teams in the field. Absolutely. Um, and I think, we, you know, we are mindful of that. And so you do see a lot of work on, especially because these, yeah, these models are, are pretty big, these really uh, nice ones. And so the, there's, a, there's been a lot of work on, on shrinking them down, on, on, on you know, getting them to fit on a cell phone processor. Um, and of course, the cell phone processors are getting bigger as well, uh, better as well. So, so uh, we're, yeah, that's, that's a, a key concern. You know, we want to, there you want to make sure, yeah, the data can fit on the, on, on the phone and the, uh, and the processing can too, and that it's not going to drain the battery super quickly. Because right, because you start doing a whole lot of processing on your phone, then all of a sudden your phone goes off uh, as well. Um, so yeah, so so and in, you know to the degree that we're making we're able to be successful there, we have to go outside of AI, right? We have to look at um, the you know uh, kind of the computer engineering and electrical engineering, and uh, how do you how do you make hardware better? Or how do you, you know, what kind of core algorithms can you use to to shrink stuff down so it can fit? So yeah, there's been some really uh, great work on that as well. Absolutely. Well, is there any way um, that your team wanted to get connected to civil affairs to find out a little bit more about what we do or maybe psychological operations? Because they're Absolutely. deeply involved with uh, w- with monitoring media and other, uh, uh, you know, the targets that we have and populations that we um, are mindful of when we're in other countries. So from those two perspectives it would be very helpful, I think, for your team to understand the types of questions we ask, why we ask them, um, why it's important to the Army and the Marine Corps and civil affairs. Well, I think this came up, actually. You know, I wasn't, wasn't thinking about this ahead of time, but like I said, um, you know, the, the interaction with Native informants is something that I imagine is, you might, like, put a book on that already, um, that, you know, you guys have way more experience than we do in, uh, you know, how to, you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of engagement, right? So I think that, that would be, useful another 
uh, more kind of fundamental uh, aspect is that you know you um, you already told me like a little bit like you know it's important for the forward operating people to be able to have stuff that's going to fit in a you know small space right uh, and and a lot of times the work that we do is targeted at analysts I hear that a lot right and um, and the more exposure that uh, that we as researchers can have really speaking for myself the more the more I understand the pain that uh, people who actually want to use our technology have the better the, the actually the better ideas I have really and the, the more responsive I can be right so there's I think there are there are pains that you experience that I don't even know about and if I did know about them they could un, uh, they could open a completely new area of, uh, of research that I'd uh, you know get super excited about so yeah I mean right. uh, just just talking with people, uh, seeing how you work to the degree that that's possible, um, is, uh, I think would be, is super helpful. I mean, and, and you know, it can, it can go both ways to some degree, right? So like when, when we produce some system that doesn't work for you, you know, it's helpful if we've had a conversation already about what we're doing and then that, the, you know, we don't, we, we don't have the, the problem where we're talking in our own terminologies past each other, right? We, we do understand each other's, uh, world so that we can, you know, get the right, the right interaction between there and resolve whatever problems we do have. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm, if I'm being clear enough, but like, I think that sometimes you have really, there's really simple issues, but they can be complicated by a lack of, for better, for better expression translation, right? We need to translate between just one, one person, one field's experience and the others. Dr. Jonathan May, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being here on the 1CA podcast and talking about Lorelei, uh, the low resource language languages for engagement and incidents and the program that you're working on for DARPA. It's fascinating and I'm sure that we'll uh, stay in touch after this to talk about how we can connect your team with civil affairs, active duty and reserve elements and possibly uh, psychological operations as well for the Army and Marine Corps to uh, help you make some progress. That sounds great. It's uh, really a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.